When you think about 2019, perhaps you've followed the news or some social media and heard what they would declare the dominant theme of 2019 to be. And it all revolves around one word, climate. You might have heard terms like climate crisis or climate emergency and people being very, uh, giving a lot of attention and awareness to this. And I'm no scientist with degrees to be able to qualify and say, uh, comment on that. But I can say as a pastor, there's a different kind of climate crisis that I'm concerned about in our country. And that's the climate of our souls. The state of our souls, are they warming towards the thing of things of Christ or are they cooling? Jesus, 2,000 years ago, spoke to his followers and warned them because he knew, as we know today, that Christians have got a lot of pollution in their thinking and their ideas. And one of the, the ideas that Jesus wanted to challenge his disciples to be aware of was this. He says in Luke 12, verse 1, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The religious leaders of the day those who are meant to set the example for how to follow God were guilty of practicing opposed to what they preached. They preached one thing, but then practiced the opposite. Jesus knew that this kind of perverted thinking is contagious and dangerous. And so he warned his followers to be on their guard. Our culture, sadly, it's not very different today. There are many, many who would claim Jesus Christ as their Lord but seem to have very little interest in surrendering to his ways on a daily basis. You could say that hypocrisy is alive and well, and it's as contagious as ever. And the time I believe to act is right now. The words of one climate uh, article in the news, it says this, it's, uh, and it applies perfectly. It says to secure a sustainable future, we must change how we live. There is no time to lose that kind of urgency needs to be applied to the issue of hypocrisy. And so the reason I draw the connection between climate change and the climate of our souls is so that this year, when you hear over and over again, climate crisis, climate emergency, the first thing that you are concerned about is the climate of your soul. And you evaluate, are you warming towards the things of God or cooling? Now, one of the best ways to counteract this crisis of hypocrisy is by living out biblical humility. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Indeed, the word of God calls all believers to live out a position of humility. So if you want to set a clear vision for 2020, maybe some goals and some outcomes that you're looking forward, this is a great one. Embrace humility. Because without humility, there's zero spiritual growth that's going to happen in your life. The way to growth is humility. God's word says in James that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if you want to invite God's opposition in your life, be proud. If you want to welcome God's grace and see growth, be humble. So what does humility look like? What is it actually like lived out this year and this week? To find out, we're actually going to start this morning with some practical application. We as a church love to preach and teach God's word and not to just understand it, but to apply it, to practice it. And so we're actually going to do two things right at the start of this, this time together that are in, immensely practical. And you can adopt these practices for your life to embrace humility. And there are these two things. We're going to pray, which is we're going to call out to God and acknowledge our dependence on him. We're going to acknowledge that without him moving, nothing of value happens. 
And then we're going to open God's word and we're going to read and allow God's word to tell us the way forward. We're going to put our ideas on the shelf and we're going to take God's word and live under it. Those are two humbling practices that we can do. And so would you bow with me now as we pray to God? Heavenly Father, you are Lord of all, Lord of all creation, and we worship you this morning. Lord, you created us for your glory, and so often we are guilty of stealing that for ourselves. Our sin is so destructive. And Lord, the longer I've known you, the more and more I hate my own sin and desire to live in the freedom that you give. Lord, even now, our sin has the the capacity to destroy this time to distract our ears, to distract our hearts, to get us thinking about things that are not what you would intend for us. And so we confess those tendencies to you now, confess any outstanding sin and ask that you would forgive us, Lord, and that you would humbly work in our lives, work in our lives to make us humble, Lord, that you would allow us to hear your word. Lord, would you do a gracious thing among us by convicting, by correcting and by training us? And would you equip us, Lord? Would you move by equipping us with a clear vision for the next step that you desire for us to take? We ask this in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to turn over to Luke chapter 17, verse 7. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. We'll have it on the screens for you. And I want you to know if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, we want you to have God's word in your hands. And so you can stop by our welcome center after the service. And we have a free one there for you. God's word and specifically this passage has worked in my life and transformed it. And I want it to do the same for you. And I believe it can. And so we're going to go into Luke 17 verse seven. This is a very short parable that Jesus told to his disciples. A parable is a a short story, a figurative story, a fictional story rather that is meant to drive home a point. And you are meant to draw parallels between the characters in the story and yourself. And that is what's going to happen here. I've passed over this parable many times, but reading through it recently was convicted by it and want to share that conviction with you today. Jesus gives a countercultural message here. It was countercultural then and it's countercultural now. And so read along with me in Luke 17, 7 to 10. It says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The message of this parable is clear. It's strikingly clear and don't miss it. Jesus is calling his disciples and by extension, us as his followers today to say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is humility. It's a right view of ourselves based on a right view of God. And as we dig into this text a little bit more, we're going to see just how radical this message is and what it looks like lived out this year. The first thing we need to look at is the word servant. If we are going to live out humility this year, then we need to embrace our identity as a servant. The key characters in this parable are a servant 
and a master. And your Bible may have a little superscript number, like a little, a little number by the word servant every time it shows up. And you look in the footnotes and it says, the Greek for this is actually bond servant or slave. And every time the word servant shows up in our passage, it is this, this Greek word doulos for bond servant or slave. Now, oddly, most English translations of the Bible take this Greek word. And even though every first century reader would have read it as slave, it's written out as servant in many places in the New Testament. And this is perhaps because slavery in the New Testament versus the slavery we know today, there's some differences and they don't want confusion. But the challenge is the term servant doesn't really carry enough weight. It doesn't carry enough of the force of what Jesus is saying here. It really does mean slave. And if you want some proof of that, you could look over to somewhere like Romans 6 verses 20 to 23, where it talks about us being slaves to sin, but now being slaves to righteousness. When God enters in our life, we're now slaves to righteousness. We're slaves to God. The language really is quite clear that without exception, the Bible declares Christians are slaves to God. That's a fairly difficult statement to, uh, to surrender to, to swallow. And you may help it, find it helpful to know that there, yes, are some differences between New Testament slavery and slavery that we think of in our modern day. So for example, slavery in the New Testament wasn't racially defined. Slavery in the New Testament was often forced, but occasionally was voluntary. People could sell themselves into slavery. For example, some would sell themselves into slavery for the purpose of gaining Roman citizenship. If you sold yourself into slavery and then worked your way out, you could gain your Roman citizenship. And then your children after that, would have the full rights of Roman citizenship. Slavery was different in that about one third of the people at that time, most scholars figure were enslaved. So there's some differences, but here's the similarity. And here's what's important for us. Slavery was always restrictive in the sense of the slave had to have total commitment to the master and the master had total claim on the slave. So A passage like, you can't serve God and you can't serve money. No one can serve two masters. That means you can't be a slave of God and a slave of money because no one can serve two masters. You could serve as an, I can work two jobs. I can work for this guy and I can work for this guy. But slavery wasn't like that. If you're a slave of somebody, that master has total claim on you. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, when you accept the identity as a servant of God, It's a slave of God. That means God has total claim on you. That's why you can't be a slave of money and a slave of God. Slave, slave, the slaves were not free to come and go as they pleased. It was not a reciprocal relationship. Just look at the parable. Jesus tells of a slave coming in from a day of work and how unlikely it would be for the master to start serving the slave dinner. It would not go like that. It would be the opposite. The slave was to serve the master dinner. And after that, he would be able to eat. And there shouldn't be even an expectation of a thank you because the slave was just doing his job. He was doing his duty. That was the norm, you could say. Now, that would be as similar to us walking into any establishment during their business hours. Let's say you go to your bank during their business hours. Probably not many of us would go into the bank and say, Wow, thanks for being open right now, guys. Thanks for being open. Call the manager. I want to I thank him for being open today. 
No, because it's just expected. The business is open. It should be open. Likewise, and even more so with the slave serving the master dinner, that was expected. That was just part and parcel of what it was to be a slave. No necessary, no thank you necessary. This was the norm. And Jesus calls us to say of ourselves, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done our duty. Now, if that puts a a bit of a bad taste in your mouth, that's fairly understandable. Even even the Greeks of that day were said to be with their love of independence, to, to scorn and reject any idea, any notion that sounded like slavery. To willingly wear the label slave to anything is not likely a popular idea around here. Yet, did you know that five of the New Testament authors call themselves slaves of Jesus Christ? Paul, James, Peter, Jude, John, these men wore this as a badge of honor, not as some label they were afraid of. They introduced their letters this way. Paul, a slave of Christ, a servant of Christ. You see, the idea of slavery is much easier to accept when you realize a few foundational truths. Number one, we are all enslaved to something. You've probably stepped into a mall in the past month or driven down some busy streets. Did you realize that each person that you came across that you saw is a slave? Every single person without exception is a slave to something or someone. Every person is living under the rule of a master. You know, there's a song I enjoy called no longer slaves. And it's a Christian song talking about how we as Christians, we're no longer slaves to fear. And that's true. But we can't take that too far to say we're no longer slaves of anything because truly we've been freed from sin, but now we are slaves to Jesus Christ. That's what scripture tells us that you're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness, a slave to God. If you realize that, then what you start to put the pieces together, you realize Satan's tactic is to paint yourself as free when you're enslaved to sin. He paints it, tries to convince you that you're in control. You're the master. You've got it all figured out. Meanwhile, all that time, truly you are a slave to sin. And he attempts to paint any slavery obligation to God as, well, that's, that's evil. And that's restrictive. You'd never get what you want out of that. Satan quickly throws a, a curveball at us to change your thinking on that. So truth number one, you need to know everyone is enslaved without exception. Truth number two that you need to know is Jesus Christ is a perfect master who loves you unconditionally. Everyone has to have a master. Jesus is the only master that loves you. Every other master is oppressive. This master of sin is oppressive. It kills you. It steals your joy. Whereas Jesus, King Jesus, master Jesus, the slavery to him is redemptive. It's beautiful. And paradoxically, it's truly freeing. It's life-giving. And the more we surrender to him, the more we realize that every limitation or obligation that is placed on us as a slave of Jesus Christ, as a servant of him, is actually for our good and for his glory. But don't be confused. He is still Lord. He is still master and we are still slaves. This has not changed. And when we realize these two truths, then slavery to this perfect God becomes not an obligation so much as an honor becomes a 
gracious honor. So let's make this real personal. Are we slaves to sin? Are you today a slave to sin or a slave to Jesus Christ? Have you waved the white flag of surrender and given him control of your life? That's only by his grace that you can allow him to be Lord of your life. It's not because of anything you did, but have you waved the white flag of surrender? And maybe zeroing in on a specific point of application. Is his lordship in your life reflected in the way you talk? In the way you talk to him or about him? You know, do you reference God as just God all the time? Or do you call him Lord? I don't know if culture has changed or maybe it might. I'm just more attentive to it now. But I feel like I sense that I used to hear a lot more the Lord the Lord, the Lord. And in recent days have heard more of God, 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 both are appropriate terms. Both are, we're allowed to use both terms as Christians, but when we use the phrase, the Lord or my Lord, we're communicating and reminding ourselves. He is master. We are obedient to him. Maybe some other phrases, things to think about. Do you refer to yourself primarily as a friend of God perhaps a child of God or a slave or a servant of God, or is the slave of God kind of excluded from your vocabulary? They're all appropriate titles that scripture gives. They're gracious things, but have you excluded slave of God out of the categories kind of indicating that Jesus is more a friend with good ideas. Truly God has called us his children. He has called Jesus himself says that he called us his friends. And the point of that was to say he actually is, he called us friends because he let us in on information that wouldn't be given to slaves. He, he made us friends in the sense he says, he says, I've actually allowed you to know some of the plans, some of the behind the scenes that only friends would know. But by doing that, Jesus didn't all of a sudden make the relationship reciprocal and fail to be master, to be Lord. He is still Lord. And yet we have the gracious privilege of be calling, being called his friends, but we are still acknowledging his Lordship. Interestingly, Jesus could have chosen a different word. When he was talking to his disciples and setting up this parable, he could have chosen another relationship that existed in that day and age, that of a patron and a client. A patron was a wealthy, higher status person, And a client was a free person of lower status and they would enter into a relationship where there was more, uh, it was more reciprocal. There was more of a, a mutual blessing to it, but he didn't choose to use that illustration. He used the illustration of a slave and a master too often, too often we make Jesus our friend with good ideas or even worse, our servant and we, his master calling him to do things for us, calling him to serve us, calling him to do these things, demanding of them, not requesting them. He though is almighty God. And don't miss that. He is almighty God. Now the fact that Jesus did humble himself by taking on the form of a servant and dying in our place on the cross is an amazing and beautiful thing. But that was a gracious gift from God, not an obligation And not something we should demand of him. Not something that puts him in the position of being our servant for the rest of our lives. No, he did that so that we could become his servants. So humility means embracing your position as a slave. But wouldn't you know it, even slaves like to 
jockey for position. I'm going to be like, well, we're all slaves, but I'm going to be like a, a higher status slave. And history actually shows that slaves did occupy different posts of different status and people would perhaps quarrel or fight for them. One, one um, historian notes and mocks the ludicrous sight of slaves quarreling with one another over glory and preeminence. It's like you're two slaves fighting over which one has a little bit more glory, but you're not the master. And that's why humility is not just about an identity, but it's also about an attitude. It's about championing an attitude of unworthiness. So notice in the text, Jesus commands his disciples not to say simply, we are slaves. We have only done what it was our duty, but we are unworthy slaves. Worthiness here is referring to being praiseworthy. Jesus is calling his disciples to say, we're not worthy of praise. We haven't done anything outstanding. We just did what it was our duty. Now, some of your translations may say we're useless or unprofitable slaves, not saying that they, they, um, had zero value at all necessarily, but saying they didn't contribute something outstanding. They weren't worthy of special thanks or praise. They were just doing their duty. A thank you is not, is not required. It's their duty. Now, John the Baptist, the man who was a forerunner and announced the coming of Jesus is a great example of this kind of attitude. When he was announcing Jesus coming, he was very clear with people who was supreme and who was not. He was very clear that Jesus was the main attraction and he was not himself. This is what he says in Luke three, verse 16. He says about Jesus, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Pretty sure if John the Baptist were here today, we'd be lining up for autographs and for five minutes of time with him to just hear. John the Baptist is a significant person in human history. He was prophesied about by scripture. He had arguably one of the best and most important jobs to announce the coming of Jesus. And this man saw himself not even as worthy to undo Jesus' shoelace. He did not struggle with a small view of God. In fact, one of the statements he is known for most, you'll recognize this. He says, I must decrease, but he, referring to Jesus, must increase. Wouldn't that be an awesome way for us to live our next year? To live with the attitude, this year, I must decrease, Jesus must increase. When we stand next to something or someone awesome, it can be humbling. I, I was driving through Toronto this week, coming back from a family uh, trip with a family and driving by the CN tower, just remembering the first time that I had seen the CN tower and stood at the base of it and looked up and you just feel tiny. And a few years ago when I had the privilege of dining for a meal at the restaurant level and looking out and feeling we're so tiny. And then yesterday I actually found out that there's another observation deck, another 33 stories up that you can pay a little extra to go see to feel even more small and insignificant. The CN tower gives you a small glimpse of how tiny you are. Maybe you've flown on some airplanes and you look out and you see the patchwork of the fields and you just realize we're tiny. We're so insignificant. Anyone who encounters the Lord, who truly encounters the Lord, never walks away from an encounter with the Lord saying, I'm a lot, I'm, I'm a pretty big deal. They walk away saying, God is amazing. He's awesome. 
They might often be even speechless saying God is so incredible. He's bigger than our understanding. So if you or myself consider ourselves to be worthy on our own merit, then we need a bigger understanding of God. Over the past few months, I've kept hearing this song on the Christian radio station playing. It goes, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul. And I love it. It hits the nail on the head for me. I'm a nobody. I'm not significant. I'm nothing special or important. Trying to tell everybody about somebody, somebody that is significant, that is important, that is worth your time. He's somebody. Let's take an attribute of God to think about for a moment, to mull over. So God is eternal. Before anything that your eyes have seen ever, before any of it was created, God was. Before any nation now or in human history ever was started or rose to power or fell, before any of that, God was. Before you were born, God was. When you think about that, that puts you in a position of humility, recognizing God is awesome. So awesome. And it doesn't change. When we conclude this life of faith, we're still nobodies in comparison to God. So unlike our world where the, the, the lifelong goal of so many people is to acquire influence, to acquire followers, to acquire status, perhaps to acquire people that will serve them. In God's kingdom, it's actually reverse. The longer you follow God, the more you realize it's about him. And it's so much less about me. So much less about me. The longer you follow him, the more you realize I'm just an unworthy servant. I don't even deserve a thank you in the end because I'm just doing what I've been called to do. There's nothing really, in fact, that we deserve. So this is, this is something we need to think about, which will change the way you view all of life. We often talk about human rights. On the horizontal plane, there is human rights, like a right to life or a human right of freedom of opinion or speech, right? Or freedom of religion or freedom to get good education, right? These are maybe human rights that God has allowed, graciously allowed for us to have. These are things that you're obligated to. But when you deal with God on the horizontal axis, there are zero human rights. You don't stand before God and demand life. Life was a gracious gift God gave you. You don't demand your own opinion. <laughs> your own opinion, I suppose, is something God graciously or maybe has allowed you to have, <laughs> but wants to give you his. There's no human rights though. So then we realize everything, everything we have, every breath we take, all of it is a gracious gift that's given to be stewarded. It's God's divine prerogative to give and to take away. Job, many, many years ago, realized this. He said, the Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We have no obligation. God has no obligations to us. We are not worthy of any of the good that is in our life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're not worthy of praise? Is that the dominant attitude toward yourself? Is that the attitude you teach to those you are discipling and influencing? When you do have that attitude, all of a sudden your gratitude level soars 
because you realize everything is such a gracious gift from God. Humility is found is not only found in embracing our identity as servants and championing this attitude of unworthiness. It's also found in simply doing your duty. It encompasses more than just our head and our hearts. It also affects our hands or what we do. You see, humility is not just a way of thinking or an attitude. It's an action. You are not a humble person just because you think you're humble or you feel really humble. You're a humble person when you behave in a humble way. So Luke 17, 10. So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The implication of this passage is that the disciples would in fact do what God had commanded them to do. Jesus doesn't say if you finish all that you were commanded, but when you finish your, what you were commanded, the commandment isn't an option. Otherwise it wouldn't be a duty. Duty is something you have to do. You are obligated to do it. So it's a parent's duty to take care of their children. It's a citizen's duty to pay their taxes. It's a Christian's duty to obey God. Now, when you hear the word duty, there's all kinds of things that might come to your mind. Living in a border town, duty is pretty negative because we think, oh, I'm going to get nailed with duty coming across the border with my Christmas gifts or New Year's gifts or Boxing Day's gifts, right? It may have a negative idea in your, in your mind. If you've maybe served in our military, you maybe have a more positive view of duty. It's, it's a noble thing to fulfill your duty and serve your country. Duty, much like the word work in the Bible, is not inherently a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing. God created work for people to do, and it is, always, it is and always was our duty to do that. So Adam, when he was created, had a duty, an obligation to take care of the garden. That was a good thing. Sin made that work very difficult. It made it frustrating at times to carry out our duty, but it's a good thing. It just simply means that we are obligated to carry out the commands that God has given us. So to obey the commands of God is to live out humility. Think of this. Humility is obedience. Obedience is humility. Because when you obey God, you're humbly acknowledging that you aren't in control. You are not the one with the best ideas of how we should approach this. You're humbly realizing that he is. Humility is doing our duty, is being obedient. However, with many things in the Christian life, it's not simply about marking a checklist off of, I've done, 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 done all things in my duty, right? You can do the seemingly right thing with the wrong heart motivation. And Paul warns about this in 1 Corinthians 13. There he reminds the church that you can do a lot of things but if the heart motivation of love is not present, it's ultimately futile. He says in verse three, he says, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, those are some pretty incredible acts, but have not love, I gain nothing. So in one sense, you can do much of your Christian duty without love. Now it gets a little confusing because there is a Christian duty to love which we are called to do. We are obligated to love one another. So it's impossible in, in fullness. But 1 Corinthians 13 is kind of showing us you can do things that look loving 
without an attitude and a motivation of love for others. And it's useless. So we don't want to get to the end of our days and say, I just did all that I had to do because I had to do it. Our motivation needs to be for God's glory. So this chart might be helpful as you think about duty and love. It's not a perfect one, but it kind of helps you to see there's some of us who are maybe more duty driven and the, the motivation of love for God's glory for who he is, isn't always there. And so when you get lots of duty without a love for God, you get a lot of selfishness that breeds the kind of hypocrisy and selfishness. The Pharisees were known for doing the right thing, but with the wrong motivation. On the flip side, you could have, have some people that just love to, to love, right? And they, they're all about, it's got to be motivated by love and that's okay. Except you need to make sure you're doing the right thing. Otherwise you have this love. That's kind of naive. You're not really doing what God has called. You kind of have the right attitude, but you're not right, really doing the right action. So where we're aiming for is that you would love your duty and do the duty of love, right? And would fulfill your duty in love. That glorifies God to do the right thing for the right reasons. Jesus called his disciples to do what he commanded without looking for special thanks. He redefined what the normal Christian life looks like. And history really has shown that those who do the most impressive things for God and his kingdom are often the ones that are least impressed with and concerned with preoccupied with themselves. Pride on the other hand is always looking for recognition. It's always wants to be recognized. So when pride's active in my life, then fulfilling my duty is not simply doing what I believe is obligated in my mind. It becomes this. I'm giving something I'm giving this gift that is over and above. I'm giving way more than I ought to give. I'm just, I'm giving so much and I should be recognized for that. I may be giving more than anybody else around me. Did you realize though, it's your duty to give your life for Christ. That's your duty. It doesn't even require special thanks. The reality is you have never given something to God that wasn't already his. It's all his, your time, your talents, Everything's his. Now this Christmas, my family and I, uh, we, we shared some gifts with one another and my six-year-old son and my four-year-old daughter one day before Christmas uh, locked us out of the basement office and said, we're, we're wrapping presents for you. And so we weren't allowed to go in there for a couple hours while they were doing some stuff. And I came in later and there was glitter everywhere. <laughs> and I wasn't so sure it was a good idea, but on Christmas Eve, we opened a couple of the gifts and my son had wrapped up this gift for me. And I opened it and inside were snacks from the cupboard, snacks, which I had purchased from the cupboard, put in a little Rubbermaid tin in the, my gift. He gave me my own stuff. A, a while back, he actually gave me one of the tools from my shop, like a tool I already owned. He wrapped up and gave to me. And it's so sweet. You think that, that's awesome. He's, he loves me, right? We do the exact same thing with God. Everything we give him as a gift is already his own. It's already his. And I'm sure it brings as much joy to God when we give it because it's motivated not out of a, a prideful, look at all the things I could give you because it's already his, but out of a love relationship. And so making sure that we give with the right attitude isn't so, so important. All of our time is his. Do you recognize that? All of our talents is, are his. All of our resources are his. What that means is that is whatever you hold back from God is actually theft. 
So holding back your time, your talents from service to God is actually theft. It's stealing from God. It's a failure to yield to the master that which is truly his. So I ask this question, what are you tempted to hold back in 2020? Where in your life is hypocrisy, this idea of calling Jesus Lord, but not surrendering an area of your life to him? Where is that most an issue? Perhaps it could be in your relationships. Perhaps there's a relationship that God meant for redemptive purposes that you're ignoring. You won't bring up that topic or you won't invest that time because you'll be vulnerable then. Maybe that's, maybe that's the area. Maybe it's in your priorities. You say God is Lord, but then time in his word, time in prayer, time sharing the gospel, time ministering to others. Those things are more sporadic, optional, once in a while things. Perhaps it's in your finances. Could it be that you've been living slave to needless debt or finding comfort in amassing things? in order to feed your flesh and kind of fill that cavity, that comfort cavity, instead of finding contentment in Christ and stewarding your resources to bless. Perhaps you're here and you're not sure. It might not be one of those three areas. Maybe there's another area. Then I would encourage you to take some time this week to to sit before the Lord and ask him, show me any area of my life, Lord. I'm open. Any area of my life where I practice opposed to what I preach, where it's a blind spot. I'd actually encourage you to pray this dangerous prayer to say this to the Lord, Lord, wherever, whatever, whenever, however, you're Lord of everything. And I give you my yes before you even show me the rest. That you come before the Lord and you say, you know what, Lord, I'm, I'm going to obey you. I don't even know what it looks like yet, but I have given you my yes. Now show me, I dare you to pray that prayer. Humility that leads that and heals our hypocrisy is not only an identity. It's not only an attitude. It's also an action, an action of obedience. We are called to obey the master, the good, perfect, holy master, not because we are worthy, but because he alone is worthy. Truly the glory goes alone to him.